He was a highly decorated career law enforcement officer. A deadly shootout changed his life forever. His personal and professional life began to spiral out of control, and he eventually left law enforcement. And now, he's found a unique way to give back to other law enforcement officers and their families. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. What do you get when you combine social audio with social media all in one free app? It's called Breakout. Get it at letbreak.com. There's a free version for your iPhone and Android devices. Be sure to follow John J. Wiley of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Use a profile at LET Radio Show. Get it for free at letbreak.com or at the App Store and Google Play. Calling us from Florida, we have on the phone Brian Regan. Brian is a, a, a former law enforcement officer, and we'll get into details about that in a moment. He left a career in law enforcement. He'll tell you all about that. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today show. Very much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Jay. It's a pleasure. And we're going to be talking about some things that that happen far more often than people tend to realize. And the news media doesn't doesn't report it. So this is part of the reason why we have the Law Enforcement Today show. Is it provide a platform for people like you to tell their stories. I'm going to paraphrase very, very quickly. Uh, Brian was a, a highly decorated law enforcement officer from Florida. He got into a very bad situation, a violent situation involving a shooting. And I think it's fair to say his personal and professional life began to spiral out of control afterwards. And, and then he left law enforcement. But he's still giving back to the law enforcement family. So with that, l- let's talk about what you are doing now, and then we'll get into your story more. All right. So now uh, I'm co-founder and vice president of a company called 106 uh, Advanced Training and Career Development. It's other current and former law enforcement officers that uh, the main vision is to break the stigma of mental health issues in law enforcement. That's the end goal. Um, we offer classes, the physiological effects of stress on first responders, and you know what to expect. So you can be prepared down the road. So you can have the tools, if you will. Uh, See, to deal and a, with and a lot of people have no idea about this. We always say civilians, but people who aren't in law enforcement have no idea about the stress and what it does to you uh, mentally and physically. And also, a lot of our law enforcement officers, especially new law enforcement officers, really have no concept of what could potentially happen to them down the road. Right. Yeah. I mean, all the subjects that I can remember we were taught in the police academy, uh, none involve stress management or, you know, what to expect um, when you have a bad call. Uh, we, Unfortunately, unfor- I grew up uh, with a bunch of older guys, and it was, you know, you had a bad call, and you started, uh, you know, you drank when you came home to get over the hump of that call. But at, at T6, we have a partnership with uh, Highlight Canyon Campground. This campground probably holds 100 people. We offer classes, 
not only for first responders to deal to to show you what stress does to the body, everybody's body, not just you know you're, we're special, but we're not special. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to deal with that stress so we can expect it. And another big thing is having classes for the spouses of first responders, because that's, you know, not only do law enforcement, we don't usually get the tools to deal with it effectively, but we definitely don't afford our spouses the uh, the tools or the knowledge. They have no clue what we're going through. They, they just see us coming home in bad moods, throwing things, drinking too much, with no explanation for the behavior. Um and I can tell you, honestly, in my police career, I never, we never had a class. We never had anything for the spouses. And there was no, there was nothing done by the department or other agencies at the time where it was for the couple and how to develop healthier coping skills for the stuff that was going to happen and was happening to people like me. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's, it's definitely a valuable tool because if you don't have a good foundation at your house... Uh, with your family life, then your career is, it's not going to be too prosperous. No, and these are Uh, things that tie into the epidemic problem we've been having for a long time, for decades with uh, law enforcement suicide. And I would imagine it's probably a close tie-in with our veteran, combat veteran suicide rates and other first responders as well. And when you have stress, traumatic stress, PTS, substance abuse with alcohol, uh, everything goes along with that, then marital problems, and quite often after that, or as a result of all that, suicide becomes an issue. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Before we get into your story, because it's a, a, it's a dynamite story. You, you don't want to miss this, folks. Uh, where is T6 located? You've got this campground. I've seen photos of it. It's idyllic. I, I want to go there. Where, where, where can people get more information and where are you located? Uh, we're in Bozeman, Montana. And what's the name of the campground where you'll be having Highlight your retreats? Canyon, eight. Highlight, H-Y-A-L-I-T-E, Canyon. And uh, you got to see photos of it. It's the type of place, it's like a, a postcard, beautiful kind of place. And when I saw that, Brian, I thought to myself, book me a, a, a reservation. I don't care when you're having classes. I don't care how long the classes are. I'll be there for a couple hours. Then I'm going to be outside staring at the lake and the mountains. Yeah, we. I just came back. Uh, we put on our first uh, conference for the Montana Police Protective Association where we covered various different topics, uh, how stress affects us, getting through the grind. Uh, we covered some complex investigations, retention so, and promotional process issues. We were out there in June, right? I'm from Florida, uh-huh. 97 degrees when I left. And there's six inches of snow on the ground, and it's actively snowing. I mean, the most pristine, beautiful place, all-inclusive. You come out there, bedding, food, everything's provided. Like I said, our goal is to give first responders the tools uh, that they need. I'm sure everybody keeps up with the with the news. So there's, uh, don't quote me on the numbers because they're always changing, but uh, 93 uh, law enforcement officer suicides this year, uh, and there's been 55 in the line of duty deaths. So almost double the amount of suicides than uh, in the line of duty. And that's been a problem since way before I was a rookie. And I can't quote the actual date, but the first, I had a guest on the Law Enforcement Show quite a while ago, Dr. Robert Douglas, uh, National Police Suicide Foundation. And he's retired Baltimore City Police. I actually worked with him many, many years ago. And he said the first commissioned study to study law enforcement suicide 
was by Mayor LaGuardia of New York City back in the 1930s, because that's how big of a problem was way back then. Uh, and people act like it's a current issue. It is not. It's been going on a very long time. This is Law Enforcement Today show. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Brian Regan. We're going to talk about his law enforcement career, what happened, and where he's at now. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. There was social media, and then there was social audio. Now the Breakout app combines the best of both. Best of all, the Breakout app is free with versions for iPhone and Android devices. You can download the app for free at the App Store and Google Play, or you can download for free at www.letbreak.com. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Back to the Law Enforcement Today show. I'm John J. Wiley, joined by Brian Regan, calling us from Florida. Uh, Brian, you are with an organization, uh, it's called Pen6, correct? Correct. Or what is your website? Where can people get more information about what you do, what you offer, and everything else? The website is offshift, off-shift.com, uh, uh, and all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, as T6 Advanced Training and Career Development. And when you say T6 Advanced Training and Development, it sounds highly technical. And there are parts of what you do that are, that are very industry-specific, but there's also a lot that you do that covers stress, stress resiliency, uh, how to combat these things, the post-traumatic stress problems are going on, how to prevent that. We'll talk more about that uh, again in a few moments. Before we get into that conversation, I want to talk about your law enforcement career. You were a Brevard County, Florida Sheriff's Deputy, correct? Correct. How long were you with the agency? 14 years. That's a long time. You were more than a seasoned veteran. You were, you were like salty at 14 years. Very salty towards the end, actually. That's, and unfortunately, that's what happens. It, salty can be a very good thing. Uh, when, when you have, we use terms like old school police, salty. And then you have salty where it's just a, a really bad attitude. And, and it's not always a positive. Uh, I'll let you handle that part. Before we go too deep into this, give us a bird's eye view of your career from start to finish. So I, uh, I got hired October 30th of 2000. I didn't let grass grow under my feet. I was a go-getter. I was young, uh, proactive, not reactive. So after two years, I made FTO. I had 17 trainees while I was in FTO. Uh, A lot of were fourth phase. Didn't know if we were going to have retention issues with them or not, or if they were going to have to be terminated. So more of a problem solver. Two years after that, I made corporal. And I did uh, nine years as corporal. And I went into the K-9 unit for two years. Back to the road for about a year. And then I left January 31st of 2014. And when you left, you left voluntarily, but there were certain things that happened in your career. You said you, you became salty and not in a good way. So, certainly, obviously, things happened in your career. I, too, was a very proactive, very aggressive officer, and there's a burnout phase after a while. But you, when you do that, when you're that type of police officer and you're in a high-crime area, there's a lot of 
violence and things, you're going to expose a lot of the violence and you're going to get use of force issues. You're going to have complaints. You're going to see a lot of death and dying and, and those things take a definite toll on you. Is that an understatement? No, that's that's definitely true. And uh, the culture in law enforcement is you deal with it with dark humor and alcohol, usually post-shift. You know, that's how you're, you're, you gauge how bad of a day you had based upon how much you drank when you came home to try to uh, alleviate the memory or the thought of it out of your brain. In my case, I'll tell you a little bit about the incident. Uh, it was June 11, 2010. We received a phone call of a man who was threatening his wife and himself with a firearm. I was the corporal on uh, shift. Two deputies get there first. Me and another deputy are right behind each other, and we're headed to the scene. Those two deputies, we, we learn that the female is actually across the street, uh, so the male is inside the house by himself. Two deputies make entry, and the gentleman fires two rounds down the hallway where the deputies were coming down to confront the subject inside of his bedroom. The two deputies turn around and are running out of the house. This is about the time where, uh, me and the other deputy are walking up. And they run behind cover. The bad guy that came out of the house, he, he was armed uh, with a pearl-handled revolver. And he never he didn't see us out of his peripheral because he was looking at the people that were directly in front of him. We were to his hard left. Mm-hmm. And... All the stuff that they teach in the academy about how everything during uh, stressful incidents, how they everything slows down, tunnel vision, it, it was all it was all true. My hearing wasn't affected, although there was more than forty rounds fired. I can tell you where all four of my rounds went. Everything was in. It, it was it was ridiculous how uh, at least that part of the police academy everything was uh, was true. So then we had to render first aid because uh, you know that's part of the game. So he, it took about 30 seconds. He was done. Um, he, he was deceased. I get so, what you're saying. I know exactly what you're saying. That's what we do. You have to use deadly force, and then you try to render aid to save their life. And it's a real, it's a contradiction. People don't get it, but that's what you're trained to do, and you follow your training. It kicks in, like, instinctually. Right. It's like, hey, I just shot this guy because I was in fear for my life and the life of my deputies, but yet now I'm over here trying to stop the blood. That's, I mean, there was no stopping it anyway, but yeah, it is definitely, uh, it's a psychological nightmare. It doesn't make sense, really. No, it doesn't. You're trying to hurt somebody, and now now you're uh, trying to uh, save them, but it's what we do. And I, I can tell you from my own experience that when there was really, really bad, violent situations, it, it was really... I don't owe anybody apologies. I'll never apologize for what I had to do. Uh, do I have regrets? I wish I didn't have to do the things I did, but I did them because I had to, just to survive. But right. there was almost like a primitive, I, I hate—I don't know the words to use. I've never come up with them. It's almost like a primitive celebration inside that yeah, you tried to kill me and I, I made it and I conquered you. And that, I think, is where the contradiction really starts because that's not how I feel walking around. That's not how I am normally. But in life and death situations, you act totally different. It's a very primitive thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely, I survived an armed encounter, uh, you know, or, or I was involved in an armed encounter and I survived. 
but yet it doesn't it doesn't really feel that way and you said something else about the auditory things the best description i've come up with is i, I remember one really bad situation and my partner who was in a car with me at the time he was yelling for me not to get out of the car uh, he told me that later on, but it's almost as if, you know how you're in like the, the living room or the kitchen and the television's on in the living room a couple uh, rooms away and you hear the, the, the volume in the background, you hear people talking, but it doesn't register what they're saying. It's almost as if they're in another room. That's how it was. He was yelling at the top of his lungs and I barely heard it. Yeah. Yeah. It was it, the, the auditory and the, the slow motion. I mean, I was watching bullets ricochet off the ground and off the wall, whereas I don't believe in uh, in a normal situation you would have been able to see anything like that. No, I, that always strikes me as odd because I've I've never encountered that, and I'm not laughing because I I know how police are, and they'll always say, especially ones who haven't been in the situation, they're the first ones to go, "Well, that sounds ridiculous. How would you even know that?" You can just, and, and always say, "Were you there?" And their response is no. And then I politely say, then shut your pie hole. That's it. it, No one knows how they're going to react unless they were there at that time, seeing and experiencing things from your perspective. Right. Shortly after that, you know, I got awarded the Medal of Valor. Probably for the next six months after that, it's almost like you're on cloud nine. You get to talk about it all the time. Everybody wants to know about it. Everybody wants to know the details. And then after about that six-month period, nobody really cares anymore. So going back to how we deal with stress in the culture of law enforcement, usually by dark humor, alcoholism, uh, a lot of inappropriate things, uh, I describe it almost like every traumatic incident or every incident that affected me personally, and it affects other people differently, it's like I built a house with them. I never dealt with all these blocks of problems. I just built a house. And after that six-month period of time, that house, of all the problems I had dealt with my entire career and this traumatic shooting that I had been through, everything had collapsed all at one time, and I was forced to deal with it. And I really had no idea what I was actually dealing with. I just know I didn't my attitude towards the department totally changed. Uh, my attitude towards work, my attitude towards the people at work. I mean, I loved that place. I loved everybody there. And, and it seemed like overnight, my whole demeanor and, you know, it was definitely noticed. On that yeah. note, Brian, we're going to take a short break. This is a law enforcement show. We're talking with Brian Regan is a former law enforcement officer from uh, Florida. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Have you ever wanted to listen to a favorite Law Enforcement Today episode again or chat directly with John J. Wiley? Now you can. Download Podopolo for free on either app store and send John J. Wiley a DM right on the app. That's P-O-D-O-P-O-L-O Podopolo. Hey folks, when you have a chance... Check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. When you get there, click like and follow. That's click, like, and follow Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. (music) 
back to our conversation with Brian Regan. Brian is a former law enforcement officer from Brevard County, Florida Sheriff's Department. Uh, Brian, before we went to break, you were talking about how you loved the job for a very long time. You went through this traumatic, horrible shooting. Uh, the, the guy died, and six months or so later, you began to change, and your attitudes began to change, and your coping mechanisms began to change. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about that. It, I, the, the drinking was always an issue. That's how we dealt with everything back in the day. And, and for some people, they were fine. And for other people, myself included, it became an even bigger problem, and I had to give it up because it was creating more issues than it was solving. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I, would, uh, I would definitely drink when I was there. Uh, but when I left, it, it became excessive. So about six months after the incident, like I said, my, my demeanor, everything, attitude towards the sheriff's office changed, um, and I really didn't know why. I tried to seek help with our EAP. Um, unfortunately, they had, the laws had just changed. Uh, we didn't have a lot of funding, so EAP went from used to be able to go see an actual medical doctor, psychiatrist, psychologist, to now you could only go see a social worker. Well, I wanted to go, I don't at the time, I wanted to go see somebody that had walked in my shoes before, and yeah. I wasn't going to go see somebody that moonlights as a uh, law enforcement social worker, probably does divorce, marital relations uh, during the day. I, that wasn't who I wanted to go see. That's pretty common. It's a real common thing I hear in a show quite a bit, and, and I went through that too, where it's almost like going to the the barbecue or the cocktail party and people find out you're police and they go, oh, did you ever shoot anybody? They ask the dumbest questions. And what I've heard is when people deal with therapists who are not acutely trained and experienced and aware of the traumas that law enforcement officers and the first responders and military veterans go through, it is the same sort of scenario. It's almost as if you're being judged and you get stupid questions, which no one wants to sit there and answer. Yeah, so my, my uh, solution to the problem was there was a position in the K-9 unit that came open. And I won't say that if you get in a uh, shooting or something high profile like that, you can write your own ticket to any department or any uh, division you want to. But I, went, I decided I want to go to the K-9 unit. I'm not saying I wasn't qualified. But so I go to the K-9 unit, and it's... I'm still feeling these, the isolation, the depression, the anxiety of going to work. Um, we train every other week for a full day. Um, and when you're not, when you don't have your head in the game and there's, it's a 15 person unit, I mean, you guys, it, you guys all have to gel or you become an outsider. So I went from decorated, liked deputy to an outsider because of the demeanor and the attitude that I had, I was, that's just what I brought to work. Um, so I'd never been in trouble before. Never, no documentation, no verbal counseling, no nothing. I got my first three when I was in the K-9 unit, two from a car, uh, car accidents, and uh, one uh, because I thought it would be cute to try to fist fight a deputy in the uh, wash rack at the shop. That does so, never go. That never goes over well. No, administration did not like that one. And we've had people back in the day in, in our department in the Baltimore Police Department when there was disputes, they were often settled on the district parking lot in the garage. Not often, 
most of the time we could talk to each other, but there was always a couple guys that when push came to shove, if they got pushed too far, they snapped. Yeah, it was like I had my back against the wall already because I didn't know what I was feeling. I didn't know why I all of a sudden did not I did not want to go to work at all. So I, I, that's how I dealt with it. I was that like a light back. switch being thrown? You went from really loving the job to within a few yeah, months you hated really, it? Yeah, really jaded. Do you understand why at this point? I mean, at the time, I'm sure you didn't. But now, when you look back, and after all you've been through, did, did you see something that happened? Or maybe that could have intervened or would have changed things? Uh, if I would not have, if I would have asked for help, whether it would have been the help that I thought I needed, it would have been, it would have got, it would have started something. It would have started, uh, you know, the conversation. But the stigma of having a, a mentally unstable law enforcement officer in your agency is not something that the in any administration wants to even deal with. In ours, what they would do, if you walked in and you said, I'm stressed out, I got stress problems, or I'm not dealing with my emotions well, the first thing they did was you had your police power suspended and you were what we call rubber gunned and you put on a desk job where you're answering calls and doing police reports over the phone. And everybody knew. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, that's, that, that definitely has to change. So after about two years in the K-9 unit, I, uh, I could see the writing on the wall. I, it was, I was uh, drawing way too much attention to this small little K-9 unit that had, it, had pretty nice uh, work set up. So I tendered my resignation from the unit after two years. And I ended up going back to the same precinct that I worked at before up in Titusville. So I start out on day shift. I worked day shift for probably about five months, and I still have this attitude. My my uh, my give a darn button was smashed. Uh-huh. There was no, I didn't care about anything. Uh, all I wanted was for a supervisor to say something that I didn't like, and I would lash out, knowing that I'm not going to win that fight. Uh, but I, 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 you know, I, I waited for it. So we put in. I I, I made limp my way through day shift. Put in for shift vids. We do every year, and I put in for day shift because that was shift I was on. It seemed like I was doing, you know, I was able to maintain after there for a couple months. But lo and behold, I got my fourth choice, which was midnight shift. Which, by the way, I hated. I hated midnight shift. I know guys and gals who loved it and thrived on it. Me, I never could get the sleeping patterns down right, and we changed like every 28 days, (laughs) and it was brutal. Yeah, yeah, I, I know some people that switch like every three months now. I don't. That'd be uh, it'd be horrible for childcare, uh, childcare issues. Anyway, so I went to the commander and asked why me with my tenure is, I'm being overlooked. It's not like I was at the precinct with a bunch of older guys. I was pretty senior, and I've got the the needs of the agency explanation. You know. It, we understand what you wanted, but the needs of the agency outweighed it. So I could start to tell that my bad attitude was also rubbing off on this precinct. It's like I was the cancer. You know, you can't run a shift. You got that one guy that's always Debbie Downer that doesn't, you know, doesn't want to participate in a group, always cutting corners, uh, going home early, calling in sick all the time, um, erratic behavior. So I did that for about three months on midnight shift and 
the commander called me in his office and he said, I've known you for, I've known, he was actually my sergeant when I first got hired. He's like, I've known you since you got hired. This is not you. What's, uh, what's going on? Uh, so I, I briefly told him, you know, I'd been seeing a doctor and I had some medication, just got switched and I just needed some time. He said, well, how much time do you need? And he said, uh, I probably had two weeks left of vacation because I was using it every chance I could to not come into work. So he goes, okay, take two weeks vacation and come back and be your old self again. And I knew probably as soon as I walked out of that office that day that I was never going to come back. Um, it was so bad when I was in the canine unit, I would be putting my boots on to go to work and I would be crying because I did not want to go to work. And I tried to hide it from my wife, and that's how she got on. You know, she was so supportive for me to leave. She saw the pain that I was going through. The suicidal thoughts were ridiculous. And we got to take a break on that note. Uh, this is Law Enforcement Day Show. We are talking with Brian Regan, former law enforcement officer. It's a lot more of the conversation you don't want to miss. We'll be right back. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Back to our conversation with Brian Regan. Brian's a former sheriff's corporal from the Brevard County Sheriff's Office in Brevard County, Florida. Brian, before we went to commercial break, you, you talked about towards the end of your law enforcement career, you were actually crying when you were putting on your boots to go to work. And, and the things that you were experiencing, can you recap what those were? Uh, I felt alone. I, I felt that. Uh, I couldn't go to anybody and talk to them because in, in that profession you can't. You you got to be the you have to be the strong one. You can't be the weak one. So I felt that I had there was nothing I could do. I could leave, which ultimately I did, or I could announce that I had a problem and everybody can learn about my problem. And I might it might work, it might not. It might end my career. It it might not. I I wanted to do it my way i wanted to have control over my own uh career yeah that's something all of us want and psychologists and psychiatrists i've heard really don't like that term control but for anybody knowing law enforcement we may not have started off that way but we certainly ended up that way where we were on a desperate to try to control our own environment and our own lives and because so much of what you do every day is beyond your control who lives who dies violence you arrest someone they're, they're let back out a couple hours later, and they wind up doing the same thing again. You're, you're powerless. So wanting control of your own destiny, I think, is a normal thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I left. Uh, I called. Uh, actually, so I take my two weeks. I called uh, after the two weeks. I was supposed to head back to work that night. I called the lieutenant on duty. I told him what I was doing. He said, okay, come down here. Uh, I mean, it was nice because I didn't get any opposition. Hindsight, maybe there 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 could have been some interjection on his part. Uh, so within the within the three hour period, I had returned my car, my gun, my computer, everything that I had ever owned or been given from the sheriff's office had all been given back. 
and the last thing I was owed was my last and final paycheck. So now two days go by, and I, I talked to a commander. He was actually my commander when I was up in, in Titusville for a bunch of years. Uh, we're currently we're still friends now, but uh, he, he knew that I was struggling uh, mentally with what I had to do. Plus, I didn't tell anybody that I was leaving. I literally called the on-duty lieutenant and left. I tried to do it as selfishly as possible, so I didn't have to explain because that's that's embarrassing. Yeah. You know? So they send uh, about two days later. Two guys come to my house uh, from uh, staff services, internal affairs. And they're like, hey, uh, fill out this workers' comp form. We're going to send you to a guy that does uh, evaluations for the military people when they come back from overseas. He's in Melbourne. Okay, no problem. I fill out the form. Um, I start to go see this guy in Melbourne. And I don't know, I'm probably seeing him for three months. And he tells me, he's like, hey, man, I, I I don't know how to break this to you. Uh, I know you don't have a lot of money and you just left your job, but the sheriff's office that was supposed to pay for this only paid for the first two visits. And mind you, I was seeing him twice a week for two hours at a time. So that's four hours a week. Would it be safe to say that you desperately needed that help at that point? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And he, he that's, that's what he said. He goes, I know you don't have it and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help. I'm going to help you anyway, but I took that as a, I, not, the scabs have been ripped off again. You know, this agency that I, I gave everything for, I thought was taking care of me, and then come to find out they paid for two visits out of, I don't know, probably 30 visits that were, uh, that had happened. And I'm sure you heard just like I did when you're a rookie, you're in the academy from day one. If something bad happens to you, we got your back, we'll take care of you. And I firmly believed that for so long. But then I found out what that really meant was if you were killed in line of duty, that your family would be taken care of. If you were injured physically and or worst case mentally, you're on your own. Yeah, we, yeah, we definitely have to self-police. The agency, they, uh, they tell you one thing, but they're... They're out for themselves. We have to look out for each other. And these are all things that we teach at, at T6 and uh, that I've learned over uh, my career. So I would uh, get to my complete rock bottom. So after I learned this from, the, from my therapist, um, I mean, I didn't have much money at all, and I, I live an hour away. So it was costing a lot of money and gas, not to mention the fact that I just got told that I owed probably four or five thousand dollars and the guy's wife does the books and wasn't too happy so i'm gonna go see my sergeant who was the sergeant when i first got hired i love the guy still friends with him today uh, one of the only two people that i'm actually still friends with that's another issue but uh so i'm driving down the road and i get a little fender bender and my beverage falls on the floor and due to my beverage of choice, I had the fight or flight syndrome, and I decided that I was going to flee. Next thing you know, I'm being called by my deck commander. Uh, were you just in a traffic crash at XYZ location? Um, yeah. Okay. The police department came over to the house I was at. 
I ended up being charged with leaving the scene of an accident with property damage and uh, failure to use due care. Uh, that was that was that was bad. That was real bad. I was I, I'm I'm on the other side of the law, right? And now I'm being charged with a crime. And now I'll be honest with you, Brian. That just that that makes me that makes me very sad that you know a, a healthy contributing member of uh, our law enforcement agencies. Th- that's what happens, and that. For, for so often we become our own worst enemies and do things that put people we worked with in a really bad position where they have to do something they don't want to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's embarrassing. So I ended up, it's, it's, uh, it's embarrassing. It's, it, it's like, I, I would feel ashamed of myself and I hate for anybody to feel that way. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I, I wanted, I wanted, uh, the only reason why I didn't commit suicide from, uh, I mean, I had planned it while I was working cause I'm, I'm well versed on if you kill yourself, nobody gets your uh, life insurance. Right. So it was going to look like a car accident. That's how it was going to happen at work. Um, when I left sheriff's office, I really had no plan other than your uh, your typical ways. But my son being raised by somebody else and not having a father, and my wife not having a husband, uh, that was that was the only thing that kept me from doing it. Um, so obviously, very traumatic. Uh, I don't talk to anybody from the sheriff's office, nor did I at that time. I'm sure I could imagine what the rumors were. Uh, so I had to plead, abs- I pled no contest, and I pled absentia, which means I didn't, I couldn't show up to court. There was no way I could show up to court that it, that is overseen by the Brevard County Sheriff's Office, the right. people I used to work with. There's right. no way it could happen. So I got sentenced to 100 hours community service, and I had to take a 12-hour drive through my class. Um, and then the uh, charges were all dismissed. Well, I'm glad that part happened, but that doesn't erase where you got to. And and the, you just turned rock bottom. And I can't imagine it being much worse than that, except maybe having your gun in your hand, thinking of ending it at that point. Yeah. So that was that. That was probably about two years after I'd left. I mean, I I had to. I had to find a purpose because there's there's two things also that they don't teach in the police academy is when you leave the sheriff's office, or at least when I left the sheriff's office, and from their last conference, I think it's more universal than we think. The two things most that I was not prepared for was that the uh, the total disconnect from your friends and what you thought were your family and law enforcement once you leave. I don't talk. I had friends. I mean, and I, I don't I don't talk. I know phones work both ways. I can call them just as good as they can call me. I've never... You know, I've never hung up on their phone calls, but uh, that and your purpose. I needed a purpose in life. So actually another, the originator of T6, Jesse Holton, my wife called. I was at a bar. Uh, He had gotten sober, and the bartender ended up calling my wife. He comes out. He brings me home. He tells me, this is what we're going to do. He gave me the vision of T6. This is probably four or five years ago. He gave me the visions of T6 at the time, and that all I needed to do was go back to school, get my education, because I went from high school to police academy, and give up the drinking. That's a pretty tall task. Yeah. But you did it. And you know what? We're out of time, Brian, and I'm going to have to have you back to talk more about your mission afterwards, because that's just as enlightening of a story. Before we say goodbye, give us uh, 
the website address where people get more details about T6 again? Uh, T6's website is off-shift.com. And on all the social media platforms, it's T6 Advanced Training and Career Development. Brian Regan, thanks so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Show. Very much appreciated, brother. Thank you, sir. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.